0: within my soul, I long for purity, to be complete and whole, alone through Thee. There is no other other hope, there is no other plea, salvation full, salvation free, must come alone through Thee. I bend before thy cross and know my heart can be cleansed from its sin and draw us alone through thee. There is no other other hope, there is no other plea. Salvation, full salvation, free must come alone through thee. Just always remember, it's the only, only the gospel gives us a redeemer. And if
1: anybody ever asks you about the other religions of the world, say, well, they have lawgivers, some of their laws actually are good laws, but they do nothing to take away the sins you've already committed or to give you the power to keep that record clean. That's only the gospel. That's a unique feature of the gospel. I think it's good sometimes for us to define things like this so we have a ready answer uh, and don't mumble around trying to think of something to say that maybe won't make much of an, uh, an impression on the people that we're listening to. And so that's, that's the reason I chose that song, Salvation Free, Full Salvation Free, comes only through Christ. And nobody ever even offered such a thing, let alone provided it. Uh, so that's the unique aspect of the gospel. It has a redeemer. I tell people, I need a Redeemer. <laughs> I have a whole history that had to be obliterated. And I have tremendous tendencies in my nature to go a wrong direction. I need help to keep that record clean. And only the gospel, the gospel is the only uh, provision of a Redeemer. All right, let's quote uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> and seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain. And when he was set, his disciples came unto him Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All right, and we'll do verses 11 and 12 for tomorrow, and then you will have that passage memorized. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for your pure word that challenges us with our innate tendencies to selfishness. Help us to keep that selfishness, that self on the cross. Help us in every decision to reinstate that commitment to have self-crucified. Bless us as we study prayer this morning. Teach us to pray, just as your disciples uh, were taught to pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I told you the other day, and I don't want you to ever forget this, the goal of true religion is perfection. And people hate to say that, or they don't like to say that, because the first thing you're going to hear is, well, no man is perfect. Well, that's true. But it's the pursuit of perfection that we are called to. Be you perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Be holy, for I am holy. Paul labors to agony to present every man perfect in Christ. Paul says he's pressing toward that mark of perfection in Christ, although he hasn't already attained it, but he's pressing. And so that tells us something, that God takes the pursuit of perfection as perfection. So what's he do with the imperfections? Well the Bible says if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. Now they're talking about honest, wholehearted obedience here. Uh, Then we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanseth. I like the old King James Version because many times, not always, but most of the time, the ETH words mean continuous action. His blood continually cleanses us from sin so that no sin even appears on the record. And the reason for that is because God is not a God of time, and he knows that if you're a true Christian, as soon as you become aware of that fault, uh, you will repent, you will make it right, and uh, so in the meantime, he just makes sure it never appears on the record. And uh, why do I know that? Because Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus. When I was a boy growing up, evangelists would get up and they'd say, if you have one unconfessed sin in your life and you were to die on the way home, you would go to hell. And I could at least think of one or two things I should have done better. And uh, it never was explained to me that you're in a problem if you are a sinner. You're practicing sin. There's something in your life, in fact, it's probably hidden, that you're doing that you know is wrong and you keep doing it. Now, Now we're talking about a sinner. A sinner practices sin. Christians are not sinners. Christians may sin, but they do not practice sin. If they tell a lie, they're convicted, and they'll go back and make it right. That's how they respond when sin happens in their life. Uh, a sinner just keeps on telling lies. In fact, he's known by people as a liar, someone who you can't trust. Christians are not sinners. If you're practicing sin this morning, you can't claim anything that I just said. But if you are not practicing sin, if you're convicted by your sins and you respond that convicting spirit and you make them right and you are constantly pursuing that perfection, then the blood of Jesus Christ just simply keeps your record clean and you're always ready to meet God. I wish somebody had clarified that for me when I was a young boy, young man. It would have saved me about 15 years of condemnation. So I always try to clarify that to people because often things are said that give a wrong impression about how God relates to people who are honestly following Him. So, the goal of true religion is perfection, all right? In Matthew 6 and 7, Jesus exposes the great hindrances to perfection. The hindrance to perfection is a divided personality. You do your beautiful religious acts with a divided motive, we find, to pray to God, but also to be seen of men. You pray in two directions, I just said. You fast with divided purpose. You do it before God, and you hope that men will give you credit for being abstemious. You try to lay up treasure in two directions, on earth and in heaven. You see in two directions. You do not have a a, a single eye. You're trying to be loyal in two directions, serving God and mammon. You're anxious in two directions, toward what you shall eat and what you shall drink, and also toward the kingdom of God. So uh, the, the, uh, the hindrance of perfection is not to be a whole personality. Okay, It's to have a personality that's divided. Yes, you want to do things toward God, but you're also thinking of self. And you're trying to serve both of those things. Whether it's giving, whether it's praying, whether it's uh, uh, fasting, whatever. You're, it's always these two things you're aiming at at the same time. And uh, that's what is a hindrance to perfection. Self that was put out by way back at the beginning. We talked on the first day about putting self on the cross. Self (laughs) wants to keep coming back and come. Self wants to keep expressing itself and it'll do the strangest things to stay alive. Okay. But when it comes back in the form of religion, it's one thing to go out there and serve self with all kinds of carnality. But when you allow self now to enter into your praying, and enter into your almsgiving, and enter into your fasting, and enter into your spiritual life, that is really deadly. That's much more deadly even than a, God can convict people out there, but once they have made, uh, put self and, and become hypocritical with their religion, they're in real trouble, because God can't really deal with that very well. He can't get through to them. So, now we want to talk about perfection in prayer. It's actually the kingdom prayer or the disciples' prayer, whatever you want to call it. It's not the Lord's prayer. The Lord's prayer is John 17. This is the prayer that was given to the disciples to pray. So, I have three points here at the beginning. The delusive prayer, okay? No nation had higher ideals for prayer than the Jewish nation. One of their sayings was, great is prayer, greater than all good works, we know that's true because Jesus said, pray without ceasing. Now, I used to wonder how you could pray without ceasing, but now I see you can text without ceasing. So I guess you can pray without ceasing. No, really, I'm, I'm being very serious. I see people that they, they just text constantly. And I say, well, they could have learned to pray that way. They could have learned to keep their focus constantly on every, everything that comes into their life. Just bring it to God constantly bring everything in the presence of god they could learn to do that reflexively just like they learned to reflexively text another jewish saying he who prays within his house surrounds it with a wall stronger than iron now the jewish people recited the shema shema three times a day at nine o'clock in the morning at 12 in the afternoon, or 12 o'clock, and 3 in the afternoon. Every day they shout, recited this. The Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. They, they, they recited that three times every day. And not only that, they had a whole lot of prayers. Uh, <clears throat> where they prayed in, in almost every situation of life. And I I experienced that because I was on the plane one time with a Jewish lady. She was an extremely conservative, orthodox Jewish lady. Very nice lady. We had some very nice conversations. But she said to me at the beginning of the flight, she said, now we're going to talk. But she said, I will be interrupting our talk the whole way through this flight because I have prayers. I need to pray at at certain points in this flight. And that's what she did. She had a prayer when we took off. She had a prayer prayer. Uh, certainly when we landed, but in between, she had, a whole, she had a whole series of prayers she prayed. She prayed constantly during that flight between our conversation. That was typical Judaism. They were a praying people. All right? <clears throat> they had many special prayers. Uh, they had prayer before and after each meal. There were prayers in connection with the light, the fire, the lightning, on seeing the new moon, comets, rain, tempest. At the sight of the sea, lakes, rivers, on receiving good news, on using new furniture, on entering or leaving a city, everything had its prayer. Clearly, there's something infinitely lovely here. It was the intention that every happening in life should be brought into the presence of God. My, that's tremendous. But it also was a tremendous temptation to be a play actor, to go through all of this, and it was only for show. There was that temptation, okay? And so Jesus warns us against meaningless public words. Now, these are beautiful words if they're prayed sincerely, but often they're prayed. In fact, many people pray the Lord's Prayer and don't give much thought at all. Think of the people who pray the rosary. They pray so many the Lord's Prayer, so many Hail Mary, so many. It's just a ritual. In fact, I find myself praying this Disciples Prayer. And if I'm not careful, I'm just saying the words, and then I have to stop and go back and, and, and say, now look, I'm going I'm to actually pray these words, and I have to concentrate that it's a prayer, not just a meaningless repetition. God hates meaningless repetition. And so, here are some prayers that the Jewish people prayed, and often they were a meaningless repetition. But they're beautiful prayers. If they'd have really put their mind to giving this to God, they'd have been beautiful prayers. Bring us back to thy law, O our Father. Bring us back, O King, to thy service. Bring us back to thee by true repentance. Praise be thou, O Lord, who dost accept our repentance. That's a Jewish prayer. Here's another one. But it's pretty much, I'm afraid, vain repetition. Blessed, praised, and glorified, exalted, extolled, and honored, magnified, and lauded be the name of the Holy One. Well, those are wonderful words to say about God, but it'd be hard for me to concentrate on all of those and actually pray them as a prayer. So God did not want meaningless repetition, so if you pray the Lord's Prayer, make sure you're praying it. Make sure you're not just saying the words and say, now I said the Lord's Prayer. Um, The Anabaptists prayed that often. Most Anabaptists prayed the Lord's Prayer at least three times a day, like the Jews did the Shema. Jesus also does not like long prayers. He says they make long prayers. I think our public prayers should be relatively short. Our long prayers should be I found myself wondering, I wonder how long his prayers are at home. Now, maybe they were two hours long, I mean, for all I know. I mean, I'm not saying he wasn't a godly man, and I'm not saying his prayers weren't genuine, but he prayed long public prayers, long public prayers. I really have always felt that public prayers should be relatively short and to the point. If you, want to, if you want to pray around the world, do that at home, okay? Uh, make your prayer in public short and to the point of whatever that prayer is supposed to be about, that's, that's my concept of, of public prayer. Also, repetitious prayers. God does not care for that at all. Um, oh, Baal, hear us. O Baal, hear us. How many hours did they cry? A long time. All morning, I think. Uh, Great Diana of the Ephesians. They, they shouted that for two hours. It uh, becomes sort of hypnotic. <laughs> it does something to you, but it's not the thing that really should be done. So that is the delusive prayer that's really not accomplishing anything at all. might make you feel better, but it doesn't accomplish anything. Number two is the desirable prayer. Jesus gave us two great rules for prayer. He said, number one, true prayer is done in secret. Deliberately seek a private place where nobody will hear you or be watching. I love to pray walking. Because nobody hears me, and I can pray out loud, and I can just walk and walk and do all the praying I want to pray, but I'm in secret. Nobody's hearing me. It's just between me and the Lord, okay? Because prayer is a two-way communication. God not only wants us to be speaking to him, he wants to speak to us. Jesus said, if you're doing your worship and you remember that your brother has odd against you, that's a memory brought to you by the Holy Spirit. That's God speaking to you. He wants to do that. He wants to speak to you, and so you need to be in a situation where you don't have any distractions, nobody's there to hear, and you're communicating with God, okay? God wants to speak to us as we speak to him, and then he says the prayer should be simple. He says God already knows our need, and that's why there shouldn't be all this lengthy, flowery stuff. God already, he knows all of that, Okay? So there's no need to beat down the gates of heaven by screaming and hollering and crying and carrying on. I mean, if you truly are sorrowful and you cry, that's fine. But don't try to generate it, okay? We are to come to God with importunity. Uh, he wants us to come to him constantly with our needs. Well, you say, if he already knows our needs, what, what's this all about? Because there number of occasions where Jesus said the person who comes with importunity just keeps coming and coming and coming and coming and coming with a request. That's the person who gets the answers. And I really believe that's true. Often we pray a prayer once, twice, and then a month later we think, oh, I haven't been praying for that. Well, now God's merciful, and I'm sure he answers some of those prayers. But basically the prayer that really God hears is the importunate prayer. And I'll explain a little bit how that is. If my son came to the supper table and said, Dad, I want a bicycle, well, knowing how children are, I probably let that go in one ear and out the other. But if the next night he comes and says, Dad, did you hear me last night? I want a bicycle. Oh, now he, okay, twice he said that. Uh, Then the next night he comes and says, Dad, I need a bicycle. Oh, he needs a bicycle. Okay, okay. And if for a month or two, he, every time at supper, he keeps bringing this up and keeps explaining the, why he needs this bicycle and goes on and on and on and on, I'll after a while say, you know what? I think that boy really has a sense of his need and I pre- think he'll really use this bicycle and I think he'll really appreciate it if I give him a bicycle. So it's not to overcome God's reluctance, it's more for God to be able to observe and for us to be able to get to the place where we really sense our need. And we become desperate. And God knows that once we get to that place, if he answers our prayer, it's going to mean something altogether different than if we just mumbled one little prayer uh, sort of halfway, half-heartedly. So I think it's more the conditioning that happens to our hearts as we come and come. We're building a relationship with God. I used to think if you prayed it more than one time, that meant you didn't have faith. No, I think it 's the opposite if you keep praying and praying and praying it 's not happening, but you keep praying and praying and praying. That means you have faith that it 's going to happen if you keep praying. George Mueller said he had five friends who were lost, and he prayed for them for fifty years. This is in his journal, and in his journal he records two or three I forget which were converted shortly before he died, and somebody else observed that the others the rest of them were converted shortly after he died. But he prayed for them for 50 years. 50 years he prayed. So these are the uh, desirable prayer characteristics. uh, Simplicity and secrecy and importunity. Now we want to look at the disciples' prayer. So if you turn to Matthew chapter 6, we will look at this wonderful, wonderful prayer. I'm calling it the disciples' prayer because it's the prayer they were to pray. I told you Jesus prayed his prayer in John 17. Now, this prayer was given at the request of the disciples. They saw that the secret of Jesus' life was his prayer life. And we need to get that through our heads. The secret of spiritual life is your prayer life. You are no more spiritual than you are prayerful. Okay? And when I say you, I'm talking to John D. too. That disciples never ask to be taught how to preach. They never ask to be taught how to cast out devils. They never ask to be taught any of those things, how to heal. This is the only request they ever made in Luke chapter 11. Lord, teach us to pray. They saw their master pray without ceasing. They saw that that's what what it was. That's where the secret was. That's where everything that happened found its origin in his prayer life. He was praying when the Holy Spirit came upon him at his baptism. He prayed after feeding for the 5,000. I think a prayer of tremendous gratitude that his God had answered his prayer. He prayed all night before choosing his disciples. He prayed after healing and teaching. He was praying when he was transfigured. He said demons cannot be cast out without prayer and fasting. And that doesn't mean you start fasting when you need to cast out a demon. You won't have time. That means you had a history of fasting. And you're all ready uh, for for the experience. He said men ought always to pray and not to faint, not to give up. He prayed in Gethsemane before the crucifixion. I want you to look at what it says about that. Would you turn to Mark chapter 14 verse 33? if you ever have any question about the full humanity of Christ, remember this passage. Verse 34, and he said unto them, my soul is exceedingly sorry, I'm sorry, I, I, I need to begin with verse 33, and he taketh with him Peter and James and John and began to be sore amazed and to be very heavy. The Amplified gives it this way, he was stricken with terror and horror and desperately depressed. I never think of Jesus that way. Depressed? Jesus? Facing the cross, he was overcome with a horrendous horror and terror and depression in his humanity facing this awful ordeal of the cross. And we don't know what all went on there besides the physical suffering. But the physical suffering is enough to make you face a cross with horror. And yet he was going to bear the sins of the whole world. He was going to have the father turn away and uh, 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 forsake him. All that was going to happen. And so he knew that he had to overcome that before he went out to be crucified. And then when he went out to be crucified, you don't see any of that. You see a man with perfect poise. He had his attitudes under control. He had his speech under control. He faced that like a king. The battle was fought in the prayer in Gethsemane. And that same tr- same thing is true with us. If you don't pray like the disciples did, you become flustered. You run away. You deny Jesus. You do all kinds of crazy things. If they'd have stayed and prayed with him, that would not have happened. And so when we go out and we're all flustered and we do all kinds of dumb things, uh, Uh, counterproductive things and things we regret afterward, it's because we did not fight the battle where it has to be fought. It has to be fought in the prayer closet, okay? That's where the battle's fought. If it's not fought there, you're going to go out like the disciples and not be able to face life. Did you know that it could be a sin not to pray? Samuel said to Israel, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Well, the the word sin is the Greek word hamartia, which means to miss the mark. And certainly not to pray when you should be praying is to miss the mark. So now here we have this model prayer, which we're going to look at. I want you to understand that if you could ever pray this prayer with a full understanding and uh, offering of what it really means in response to what it really means, you pretty well will cover all of life. That's, that's my purpose this morning, to show you that this prayer covers all of life. In fact, so much so that the Anabaptists often used it as their instruction for baptism. I, could, I can show you, I could find you a sermon where they show how they use this prayer to instruct applicants for baptism. They felt that pretty much everything an applicant needed to know before he was baptized was in this prayer. All right, so it is a tremendous prayer. But you can pray it repetitiously, you can pray it meaninglessly, you can pray it routinely. Uh, I find it's really difficult for me to pray this prayer and to actually pray it. And sometimes I'm halfway through it and I realize I was just saying words. So I have to go back to the beginning and I have to put, concentrate with my mind to give this as a prayer to God. All right. And if you do, you will basically cover all of life. Every time you pray it. And if you pray it three times a day, you will be basically covering your whole life three times a day, which God loves. Okay? So, <clears throat> let's learn to pray this prayer. A couple things we notice before we get into it is the first part of it is to God. We have three petitions to God. Then we have, uh, that's the pa- Then we have our needs. And that covers the past, the present, and the future. The past, forgiveness of sins we've already committed. The present, the bread we need for today. And the future, deliverance from sin in the future. So you have, you have first of all, you have uh, a focus on God. Then you have a focus on the past, the present, and the future of your own needs. Uh, and that's what you have in this prayer. So, let's learn to pray this disciple's prayer. Let's, be, let's learn perfection in prayer. I have 10 observations I'm going to make here. The first one is, we need to pray as sons. We need to pray as sons. It says, our father, our father. We need to begin this prayer with a right conception of who we're praying to. Now, children relate to a father in a very specific way. If they're small children, as they grow older, this changes somewhat. But uh, as small children, they believe in their dad absolutely. I remember my seventh grade teacher said that before she went to bed one night, her father read her a story about an elephant. And just like fathers do sometimes to be funny, he pronounced it elephant the whole way through the story. The next morning, believe it or not, coincidentally, her teacher read a story to her class about an elephant. And the first time she said elephant, her little hand went up. Teacher, that word is elephant. And she said she remembered that teacher tried desperately to get her to understand that that was a wrong pronunciation, but she could not convince her. Her dad said elephant. That was it. That's a child. A child also does not even question when he's severely disciplined. He always knows it's his problem. It's only when he gets to be 13, 14 in those teenage years that he begins to have some judgment here that well this wasn't fair. That child has none of that. In fact, they tell us that if a child if a if parents divorce, the children often believe it's their fault. Their parents are perfect, it must be me. Children absolutely trust their parents. If their parents say it that's the way it is, if their parents tell them to do it, that's what has to be done. They absolutely trust They'll come to a parent if a dog's tail gets cut off and believe the parent can reattach it. I mean, they they believe daddy can do anything. They believe every word he says. They blame themselves for all their faults. That's a child. And we're coming to God as a father. Are we coming with that attitude of awe and absolute respect and absolute obedience and absolute trust? No questions whatsoever. If God says it, That's how it is. If God tells us to do it, that's what we're going to do. That's our attitude when we come to God as a father. And that's amazing that God would have us to be his sons. I would understand if God had said, look, these people are in a bad way. They're all going to perdition. We're going to do something. And he would have provided a redemption that would have put us in the category of servants or slaves. I would have said that was a great redemption. But that's not what he did. He brought us into his family. He made us sons. And why he would ever want me for to be his son, I have no clue. I have not been a good son at all through most of my life. But God wants me to be family. In fact, John was struck by this, the the writer John. He says, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. That word manner, if you look it up, means strange. This is a strange love. That we should be called the sons of God. Servants of God, yes. Slaves of God, yes. Sons. Wait a minute. But that's what God did. And we should be like Gypsy Smith. Who preached the gospel way into his 80s. And Fleming Revell, his publisher, said to him, Gypsy, what is the secret of this passion you still have to preach the gospel? And he said, I have never lost the wonder. I have never lost the wonder. It's just too wonderful. It's too unbelievable that God would do what he did with the likes of me and would want me to be one of his family. This is an amazing thing that we don't think about and it doesn't grip us like it should. All right. This is a privileged relationship and our father is a rich father. We have a song in our hymnal that says thou art coming to a king large petitions with thee bring for his grace and power such None can ever ask too much. (laughs) That's our Father. (laughs) And that's why we should constantly be praying, because the resources are unlimited. Okay? It's a trusting relationship. Later in chapter 7, it says, everyone that asketh, receiveth. It took me years to get that through my head. There again, asketh, continues to ask, continues to knock, continues to seek, receives. Everyone Everyone that asketh, receiveth. We come to him with, in this prayer because we're coming to our rich father who we are family with him, and he loves to give things, good things to his children. And everyone that comes to him with a request and continues to re, with that request will receive. That's how we begin this prayer, okay? That's praying as a son. I went over that sort of fast, but uh, I think you're getting the point. It's an absolute trust in a very rich father. And if we really understood that, we would be constantly bringing everything to him. I mean, the source of everything is there. Not here, but there. The second thing we notice here is we pray as a brother. Our father. There's not a singular pronoun in this whole prayer. It never says I. It never says me. It always says ours. Us. Us. It's always a plural pronoun. Seven of them. Never I, me, or mine. The Anabaptists understood this. They said, no man can come to Christ except he bring his brother with him. You see, and I don't have room on this board to do it, but that's okay. Uh, Most people have this idea. They have this individual relationship with God. Everybody has their own individual relationship with God. That's not what our Anabaptist forefathers understood. They understood that here we are, and we're coming as a body to Christ. And so that's why they said, no one can come to Christ unless he brings his brother with him. That doesn't mean that when you go to pray, you've got to get your whole congregation together. No, but what it does mean is while you're praying, they're all there. And if you remember that there's a relationship problem between you and somebody, that's going to be a problem, and you need to resolve that before you continue your prayer. That's what he's saying. Okay? In fact... I want you to turn to 1 John. Here's an amazing scripture. 1 John chapter 2. And we want to look at verse... Where are we here? Oh, verse 11. No, it's verse 10 that I want. Chapter 2, verse 10. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Do you see that? This man who loves his brother has no occasion to to commit any sin. Now you stop to think about it. All sin is a result of a wrong relationship. If you lie to somebody, obviously you don't love him. If you fornicate, you don't love the girl. If you steal, obviously you don't love. I mean, you you go down through the sins that people commit. And all of them are based on a wrong relationship. Every one of them. And so he's saying, if you would truly love everybody, there would be no occasion for any sin in your life. That, to me, is an amazing statement. And John really did believe this. Because... When he theologically discusses things in this book, three times he dips down for an application. Three times he applies what he's just theologically taught. And every time, it's love of your brother. Every time. That's the only application John ever makes in this whole book. That you must love your brother. Because John believed that that was the secret to everything. And if that, any place where that becomes marred, there's going to be sin. And if we could all keep ourselves in the love of Christ and the love of our brothers, we could, in fact, experience perfection. Now, I'm realistic. We're all going to struggle with relationships, and they're all going to have to be repaired occasionally, and so on. So there's going to be some occasion for sin. But idealistically, if I, if you could love everybody with a pure heart fervently, there'd be no occasion for sin in your life. That's an amazing statement. That is an amazing statement. We cannot say Father unless we claim the rest of his family. We cannot claim him for our Father if we're going to reject his family. The Bible says we're going to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, the depth, and the height of the love of Christ. We're going to comprehend that with all saints. We're not going to comprehend it by ourselves, it's going to be with all saints. And that's why I have a real problem with these people trying to live their Christian life individually. And they say, "I don't want to." Maybe they've been hurt by a church or whatever. But I'm not going to be a part of a church. Just going to go out there on the mountain and worship by myself. Well, that's not what it's all about. Our personal salvation is a means to an end. It's the society of the redeemed that God is making up, and He's calling people into. Brother, Uh, this this predestination idea has is not focused on getting people to heaven when they die. It's focused on getting people qualified to join the kingdom of God and be an elect, special, peculiar, honored, favored people. That's what the election's all about. It's an election for the kingdom of God to be expressed right here and now. Uh, The Calvinist has it all wrong. He doesn't even understand what it's all about. So... To say I'm going to be a Christian by myself is like saying I'm going to play pro- professional baseball but I will never join a team. Oh! You can't play professional baseball by yourself and you cannot be a Christian by yourself either unless you're on some desert island and there's no other person to relate to. And then God knows what to do with that. And I don't think any of you ever have that experience. But you must be part of this kingdom. That is what it is all about. Okay? So we pray as a brother. The second thing, third thing, we pray with reverence. We pray with reverence, which art in heaven. God said the idolaters problem is they think God is altogether such as they are. And that's a problem. And in our age, that's people want to talk about God as their buddy and whatever. They use all kinds of words that say, he's just a guy next to me. No, 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 no. God is in heaven. He is the great other. We will move toward him. He will move toward us, but only to bring us to where he is. (laughs) And we need to get that through our head. And we won't see anything rightly. And I appreciated Brother Mickey's talk the other night unless we see it in that perspective. And he could have added one to his his, uh, list of illustrations. The 12 spies that went into the land of Canaan. They all saw the same thing they all saw the same thing and they came back and said it's a good land it flows with milk and honey they brought grapes back to show how pr- wonderful it is but ten of them said the problem is it's a land that eats up the inhabitants thereof now I'm not sure what they saw were they killing each other was there a famine was there a plague I mean I don't know what was going on well there wasn't a famine for sure but there was, might have been a plague sickness they were dying the people in that land were dying and the ten said and they were looking at it only through their own eyes if we go in there we're going to die Come on, we can't do that. But the two said, you don't understand. They are bread for us. The reason they're dying is because God is getting the land ready for us. Now, why were they able to say that? Because they believed God when he said, go into that land and I will bless you in that land. And because they believed that, then they were able to process what they saw with the right perspective. And so, <clears throat> we need to have a tremendous reverence to God. We have, Back to what I said earlier, believe absolutely what he said, and learn to see things through what he has told us, and with that perspective, we will get it right. Okay? Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and then he was able to prophesy some wonderful things. We have a hymn in my hymn book. I've sort of regretted we don't have the hymn book here because I do, in this talk especially, have a number of hymns to refer to. Uh, But that's okay. I'll just quote what they say. Let knowledge grow from more to more. That's good. Get all the knowledge you can get, but more of reverence in us dwell. Knowledge without reverence is destructive because man is basically evil. All technology will take the human race down every time. All the technology we have has good purposes, and a few people will use it for those good purposes. But mankind in general, because man is basically evil, they will use it for evil. And so technology is not the great promise. Technology is getting us to a place where every person in this world is living in fear. So they discover atomic energy. First thing they do is blow up two civilian cities. We have the computer, but now we have cyber attacks. We're all fearing all, You can fear all kinds of stuff now. That they can do to destroy. And so, Henry David Thoreau, who wrote Walden Pond back at the beginning of the 1800s, he wasn't a Christian, but he saw this clearly. He said, Technology is improved means to unimproved ends. Did you get that? Technology is improved means, abilities, to unimproved ends. And man never learns that. He thinks technology is giving us tremendous. Well, I made tremendous, and we have made great progress. Medicines, all kinds of things that are beneficial. But along with that, is a basic drift of the world into destruction, with the technology. And remember that. So when the next piece of technology comes on the market, don't just go grab it. Try to analyze. What is this? What's its potential? Do I want to risk bringing that into my experience? All right, we pray with reverence. Uh, The next thing we have is we pray for reverence. Hallowed be thy name. Cyprian said, this should be prayed that your, hallowed be your name in me. That is a a carefulness not to do anything or say anything that would give people a wrong impression of God. I mean, there's that Westboro Baptist Church that does awful things. And I hear about, I think the only church that most of the agnostics know that call me on the phone is the Westboro Baptist Church. And what do they know about the Westboro Baptist Church? Is this horrible concept of God. And we need to be careful. Our life is giving a demonstration of God. And we pray, hallowed be thy name. I love this story of uh, this Nazi concentration camp. Well, I don't like that part of the story, but it's a, you know, some of the most beautiful things have happened in the most awful circumstances. Uh, there was a policy in the Nazi concentration camps that if anybody escaped, 10 people would be chosen to be put into a death cell and not be given any water or any food until they died. It would have been a horrible death. And everybody in the camp knew that. So they knew if they escaped, that would be the consequence. And so there was an escape, and they lined up the men, and they went down the row, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, and they picked out ten men to die in the death cell. One of those men was a man with nine children. And it was known in the camp that he had hoped to survive because he felt his family needed him. There was also in that uh, camp that was not chosen a man who was single. He was a pastor. And he very carefully, because these Nazis were terribly unpredictable and mean, he very tactfully was able to make a request that he could replace the man that had the children. And he was granted that request. And these old men all went to this death cell. Now, everybody knew that the men in that death cell spent their time, spent their time screaming and blaspheming, And blaming God. And blaming everybody under the sun. It was just an awful thing to hear that men in that death cell. But this was different. All they heard from that death cell. Because that pastor was there. Was singing and praying. Until they heard nothing. That is beautiful. We want people to come to reverence God. And we have a tremendous influence. In that direction if we wish to be. Oh to be like thee. The passion of that song has always blessed me. A passion for holiness. Number five, we pray for a realization of his kingdom. Thy kingdom come. God's first priority on this earth is his kingdom, which currently is the church expressing that kingdom. Okay? And we are not to seek our own salvation first. We're to seek the kingdom first. Our salvation is a means to that end. And that should be the whole focus. God is salvaging my life because he wants a society to redeem for the world to see. Okay? He wants a little colony of heaven on this earth. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer. That kingdom come, that will be done in earth as it is in heaven. In fact, if you seek to save your life, what's the Bible say? You'll lose it. Years ago... Charles Finney wrote a book called Lectures to Professing Christians. So everything in that book was to Christians. I don't remember anything else he said in that book except one thing. He said, he whose primary purpose, now I'm not saying that the idea of avoiding judgment and going to heaven when you die, that should be part of our thinking. I'm not saying it shouldn't be. But he said it this way, he whose primary purpose is to escape hell shall surely go there. And then he quoted this verse. He that shall seek to save his life shall lose it. Because that's still selfish. That's a selfish motive for being a Christian. It might be a good start. If you started out that way, that's fine. But you should very quickly get your focus on the kingdom of God. Because if you seek only to save your life, there's no promise for you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's what we are supposed to seek. A society in which Jesus would feel at home. As king, Rome away from Rome. You know, Philippi was a a Roman city in the middle of a Greek civilization. And when you walked toward Philippi, you walked through Greek territory and you heard Greek language, you saw Greek customs, you saw Greek courts of law, everything was Greek. Until you stepped inside Philippi and then it was Latin, it was Roman dress, it was Roman law, it was Roman custom. Just a stark difference. And in Philippians, it says, our conversation is in heaven. We're here expressing heaven. There should be a stark contrast between the kingdom of God, the society of the redeemed, and the world. I hope you learn to distrust everything about their values. They're all rooted in self, and they're all an illusion. And so we pray for a realization of his kingdom. We commit ourselves to a perfect realization of what God had in mind when he created man. The society he had in mind. And uh, Jesus came to restore that society because he died on the cross to free us from this power of selfishness. By the way, just remember, if you don't remember anything else I said, selfishness is a synonym for sin. That's what it is. That's what we put on the cross, self. He came to redeem us from that. He came to deliver us from the power of that. Now, we struggle with it, but we have a power that causes us to rise above it if we avail ourselves of our resources. So, this point was, pray for reverence. We pray with with reverence. We don't want to sully God's name in any way. And then we pray that God will give us more and more reverence. And then we pray for his kingdom. All right? Number six, we pray for obedience, Thy will be done in earth. I always pray in earth. And I'll tell you why. Because this is the earth I want his will to be done in. (laughs) I know a lot of people say on earth. I think the old King James Version says in earth. It says, uh, um, thy will be done in earth. Yes. And that's how I always pray it. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So we pray for obedience, actually. God has no plan of salvation Remember, salvation means salvaging. He has no plan to salvage a life that is not surrendered to him. Did I give the uh, uh, illustration of a surgeon here? I did. Yeah, he's going to have to do lots of cuts, and they're all going to hurt, and many of them we don't want. And there's no way that he can do that operation unless we are totally surrendered to him. Because we're going to rise up and rebel and get off the operating table. Yeah, that's what's going to happen. So we pray to be obedient. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Now, how do we know the will of God? Uh, uh, Brother uh, uh, Wolf touched on this yesterday. But I'll give you a few things here too. Number one, and he did touch on this, nothing is God's will if it doesn't harmonize with the Bible. Okay? If it doesn't harmonize with the word of God, it's not the will of God. Suppose you saw a man outside a bank, he's on his knees, desperately praying, asking God whether it is his will for him to rob the bank. What would you say? Get up off your knees. It clearly is told it's wrong to steal. But people do that all the time. God, is it your will for me to remarry? God, is it your will for me to take off my covering? God, is it your will for me to go to the military? I mean, those prayers are prayed all the time. In fact, I had an aunt who married a Methodist. And she vowed and declared to her family that she would wear her covering in that Methodist church even, nobody, even if nobody else wore it. And then she quit wearing it after a while. And then one day she was cleaning her house. She took a yardstick under one of the pieces of furniture and out came a tractor on the covering. So she put it back on again. Then she ended up in the hospital, and of course they didn't keep her covering on in the hospital. And Uncle Frank, who never appreciated her covering, told the family, now when mom comes home, don't you say one word to her about it. And they didn't, and she never wore it after that. But this is what people do with the will of God. They play games. And so the first principle is, if you're violating anything God said, don't expect him to tell you anything. Okay? That's the first principle and you say well that's easy what well, might not be as easy as you think you might make yourself believe all kinds of things about the Bible if your desire is strong enough uh, to rationalize by the way most theology is rationalization brother uh, I, I keep working on brother Allen back then. <laughs> anyway number two You commit yourself to doing the will of God before he tells you what it is. You have committed yourself, God, whatever you tell me to do. Like Paul said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? You you, you make that commitment before God tells you anything. I say to people, it's like if you gave God a blank piece of paper and you said, God, would you write your will on this piece of paper? And God says, okay, I will. But do you see that little line at the bottom? As soon as you sign that, I will start writing my will on the paper. You commit yourself to do what he tells you to do before he tells you. Because he said, if any man will know his will, do his will. If any man will do his will, he will know of the doctrine, whether it be of me, Jesus said, or of of man. Or whether it be of God or of man. So that's the second principle. Is to commit yourself to doing it before he tells you what to do. Whatever you tell me to do, Lord, I'm going to do it. He wants to hear that before he tells you anything. Number three, he commits himself to pleasing God. I think I described this the other day, the difference between obeying God and pleasing God. You know, David one time wanted to build a, I told you this, wanted to build a temple, and the Lord said, no, but I'm pleased you wanted to build the temple. David pleased God. God never said in any of his instructions that there was to be a temple built. A tabernacle was good enough for him. But he was so pleased that David wanted to build a temple. And David's whole life is that. I mean, you read the the Psalms. I mean, he's just pouring out his devotion, his desire to have the pleasure of God. And the fourth one is to be faithful in that which is least. To be faithful in what's right in front of your nose. Now, how many of you read Silas Marner? Oh, tremendous story. Well, Silas is a man who, at the beginning of the story, is wronged by the church he was in. And he becomes bitter and he leaves his community, goes to another community where nobody knows him, becomes a hermit and dedicates himself to making money and stays in his little cabin and only goes around selling things to people. But he makes no connections in town as much as possible because he's just bitter against everybody. And then something happens, and I don't have time to describe that, that he has to start making contact with people in the town. And they start telling him some realities about life. And so finally, he asked Dolly Winthrop, who's my favorite character in the story, even though she's a very minor character. She's an ignorant woman. She cannot read. She puts uh, the uh, symbol that's on the pulpit in the church. She puts that on all her pieces of bread. She doesn't know what uh, her cakes that she bakes. She doesn't know what it means, but she just thinks it's always good to have a good symbol on your cakes. So <laughs> that's a kind, I'm trying to describe what kind of woman. She doesn't understand very much, but she was profoundly wise. Silas said to her, Why did this happen to me? Would you tell me why God did this to me? And she said, Mr. Marner, I never can figure out the big things in life. But I have found that if I take care of the little things that are very clear to me, the big things take care of themselves. That is profound. Philip Rudolph loved to tell the story of a boy who was up in his room praying for the will of God. Oh, God, what's your will for my life? And he was thinking missionary, preacher, whatever. And then all of a sudden, Tom, will you come down and wash the dishes? Oh, Mom, I'm praying for the will of God. And Philip liked to say, you see, Tom was expecting God's will to come through the ceiling, but it was coming through the door. If there's any secret to anything I have accomplished, it's not been very much. It's that whatever I was given to do, if I was given a devotional to give, I put my whole heart into that. If I was asked to teach school, I put my whole heart into it. If I was asked to come to CLP and work, I put my whole heart into it. That, that, if anything, and, and then the doors just sort of open because people observe. Well, yeah, and so we ask him to do this, and the opportunities get bigger and bigger, and God knows how to make that happen if he sees you're faithful in that which is least. So put your whole heart into whatever anybody asks you to do. Do it to, with all your might. The Bible teaches that. So if you obey those four principles... I don't think you can help but know the will of God. If you make sure that all your life harmonizes with God's word. If you commit yourself to doing God's will before he tells you what it is. If you commit yourself to pleasing God and don't just obey him out of grudging obedience. And if you're faithful in that which is least. Okay. But most people are rationalizing their understanding of God's will. And that's why. (laughs) Here I go again. I am suspicious of systematic theology. It was systematic theology that gave us the just war theory. It's the systematic theology that gave us Calvinism or Augustinianism. It's, it's the uh, uh, theology that gave us the second work of grace. It gave us all these errors, which with clever reasoning, with cherry-picked verses from the Bible, put in a system to come to a conclusion that we wanted. That's what I think about when I think about theology. Now, we all have theology. Theology is what you believe about God. I'm talking about that systematic theology, that sophisticated stuff that knows how to manipulate the verses and get them to say what you want them to say. You can see it disgusts me terribly. Soren Kierkegaard said it this way. Soren Kierkegaard was a Lutheran. He wasn't just the most conservative Lutheran, but he did see the tremendous stupidity that was going on in the Lutheran church. He said it this way. The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand, and it really is. People say, well, well, you have to interpret it. I said, well, yeah, if you're talking about the epistles, probably, and that's what people like to do. They like to go to the epistles, and they can do, do anything with the epistles. You can say it's wrong to split wood. God said, whatever, God joined together, let no man put asunder. But anyway. <laughs> but if you go to the teachings of Jesus, there's not too much to interpret. Love your enemies. Do you cut off the head of someone that, Do you love them? I mean, I I don't think, Dean Taylor says he'd like to see a Bible with a footnote for all of Jesus' teachings, where it says, love your enemies, and you go down to the bottom of the page, and it says, this is what it really means, love your enemies. (laughs) But here's Kierkegaard, the Bible is very easy to understand, people who really want to understand what Jesus said really have no trouble, and you go down through history, and they all come to the same conclusions, including non-resistance. But we as Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words of the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Here lies the real place of Christian scholarship, and I'll add, theology. Christian scholarship is the church's prodigious invention to defend itself against the Bible, to ensure that we can continue to be good Christians without the Bible coming too close to us. Oh, priceless scholarship, what would we do without you? Dreadful it is to fall into the hands of the living God, but it is even more dreadful to fall into the hands of the New Testament. I hope I've made myself clear God is looking for obedient people who just quit rationalizing and quit theologizing and just do what he has plainly told us and then we pray for necessities give us this day our daily bread non accumulation of wealth is there very clearly very clearly it's there Christians do not accumulate they are lavish givers. That verse, we don't have time, oh my, we're running out of time terribly. Uh, We don't have time to go back to that passage where it says God loves a cheerful giver. And by the way, that verse I always quote, uh, God is able to make all grace abound towards you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may abound into every good work. That's my favorite verse in the Bible. But preceding that, God is a lavish giver if you are a lavish giver. It's right before that that it says God loves a cheerful giver. And that word for cheerful in the Greek is hilaros, hilarious. I tell people that when they pass the offering basket, there should be chuckles all up and down the pews. I mean, this is a hilarious, this is a, I came to church because I, it's just, am always hilarious when they pass that offering plate. That's the attitude God wants. He wants us to be cheerful givers. And I've already told you that that's going to be the final judgment. It's not going to ask if you're born again. It's not going to ask if you're holy. It's not going to be asked, many of the things that we preach about, it's going to be, what did you do with your stuff? Okay. And I could say, you know, I could say an awful lot about this subject, but we've already talked about it. Number eight, we pray for forgiveness. Are you becoming convinced that all of the Christian life is in this prayer? We pray for forgiveness. This is the only part of the prayer that's repeated. So we know that it's a very important part of the prayer because all of human experience is based on this, forgiveness. If you can learn to forgive all of life will open up to you. And the reason why the base of all human relationships is this is because we are all human. We're all going to disappoint each other, probably all going to hurt each other, I hope not intentionally. And to forgive means you just embrace the hurt, you embrace the indignation of the wrong, and you let the other person go free. Oh, but it's not fair, my children say to me. And I say, that's what forgiveness is. If it'd be fair, it wouldn't be forgiveness. Joseph, when he was carried into captivity and suffered 13 years of nothing but misunderstanding and abuse. When he finally was given his freedom and a wife, and he had a child, anybody know what he named his first son? Manasseh. Does anybody know what it means? God hath made me to forget. What? You could not tell us what happened during those 13 years. Joseph could have told you every detail. But there'd have been no bitterness, no anger, no attempt to put people down, no attempt to get back at his enemies by abusive speech. You'd have just heard it as a recitation of the facts. That's all you'd have heard. And that's a blessing to me, that if we are willing to take the indignation and the hurt, God takes that away. And then that person's free, I'm free, and everybody's free. And I tell married couples, I say, I know you don't believe this, Because you're living in high romance right now, and you think you're going to walk off into the sunset, and you can have a lot of romance, but you're going to have to work at it. Because sooner or later, something's going to happen. Like the couple that went to the motel on their wedding trip. Here he left his containers for his contacts behind, so he got two styrofoam cups and put his contacts in that for the night. In the morning, one of them was missing. Honey, what happened to my contact? Oh, honey. I got up in the middle of the night and wanted a drink. (laughs) He didn't mean to hurt her. I mean, a lot of this stuff happens unintentionally. But right there, he could have ruined their whole wedding trip. But he chose to forgive her and act as if it never happened. But he had to bear the hurt. He had to bear the indignation. It wasn't her contact she had to do without. And that's going to happen in every relationship. And we have to learn to let it go. That's what Jesus did. He saw this horrible record that we had stacked up against Him and God, and He chose to let it go and forgive us and give us the means by the cross to do the same thing. Forgiveness is costly. God wants us to set people free. Jesus said in the, in the synagogue, this is the year of jubilee when every, all the debts are set free. And that's how we should live. But if we choose to live in unforgiveness, we will not be forgiven. Now, I told you that the essence of forgiveness is to set people free. So let's broaden this understanding. If we don't set people free, we will not be free. Corey tended to him one time in a dream that she was in a she had her enemy in a cage. And she was going around punching him with a stick and she was having a great time, making him suffer for all the wrongs he'd done to her. And then in the dream, God says, Let him out of the cage. And Corey said, No, no, no. She was enjoying what she was doing. But God finally persuaded her to do it, gave her the key. She opened the cage, and guess who came out? Corey. She was the one in the cage. That's what Jesus said. And so a lot of people walking around, they're in bondage to depression, loneliness, addictions, insecurity, fears, habits they can't break, all kinds of bondages. In fact, when somebody calls me and says they have this tremendous addiction, first thing I say is, what's your relationship with your father? Ah! There it is. There it is. And you will have your addiction until you forgive your dad. That's what Jesus is saying here. And I think that's why he repeats it twice. He understands the tremendous cost of an unforgiving spirit. You cannot afford it. And I could tell you some stories, but I don't have time. Number nine, we pray against temptation. Now, no, we're not praying against trials. We are promised we're going to have trials. God wants us to have trials. Because it's in the trials that our character is developed. In fact, Paul had a tremendous attitude toward trials. Would you turn to Romans chapter 5? Maybe you can reach this level. I haven't quite reached it yet, but I'll give it to you. Romans chapter 5. He says he rejoices in all kinds of things. And then he says in verse 3, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations. Now, I had Latin in school, and I didn't learn very much, but I did learn some vocabulary. And tribulum was the flail that they used to beat the heads out of the grave. So that's what tribulation is. It's, it's a severe beating. And Paul says he glories in that. He had a number of them. Really? <laughs> How many of you, when you're really under some kind of uh, persecution or suffering because of something somebody's doing to you, do people in your house hear you say, praise the Lord, and you go off singing, and you're just thanking God for this wonderful tribulation and all the good things it's doing? Look what it does. Knowing that tribulation worketh patience. So you prayed for patience. You better not, unless you're ready for the beating. And patience, experience, that's character. And experience hope. And hope, because if this happens to you often enough, you know what's going to happen after the, the uh, tribulation. So the, if it starts to happen, you have hope, you know you're going to come through better. And then the love of God is shed abroad in your heart because tribulation sensitizes you to other people's pain and needs. So if you want, if you want to love people, the process is a, a severe beating that teaches you patience, that gives you character, that gives you hope, and then finally gives you a genuine love. Oh, by the way, patience is cheerful endurance. Look it up in the Greek. So we pray, though, that in this trial, we will not be tempted to blame God or blame somebody else. That's the problem. The trial's good, but there's a fine line there where we cross that line and instead of looking at it the way Paul looked at it, we blame somebody, even God. Why is God doing this to me? And there are many people who are bitter against God because they went through some bad experiences. And Paul is, we're praying in this prayer. This is a very treacherous thing when we're under trial that we won't get on the phone. And gossip against the person who's causing the trouble. See, that's what happens. And we pray that that won't happen. We will not blame anybody. We will suffer the trial and benefit from it. That's what this prayer is all about. Next, we pray for deliverance. Deliver us from evil. It actually should read the evil one. And that's how I always pray it. Deliver us from the evil one. This is the subconscious cry of every heart that we could be delivered from our faults, freedom to be our best. Deliver us from, Paul says, O wretched man that I am, deliver me from the body of this death, this flesh. David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Every person in this world wants deliverance from pain, bitterness, disappointment, worry, poverty, broken dreams, and broken hopes. We sing in our hymnal. Here's another song. Oh, life in whom is life indeed in whom our best desires are freed. I love that statement. I get goose pimples every time I sing it. Oh, life in whom is life indeed from whom are in whom our best desires are free. We're delivered to be what we were intended to be. I tell people, you know, when you crucify self, you're not really crucifying self. You're crucifying a self that is parading itself. It's not your true self. It's an imposter. It's a distortion of who you really are. And God wants you to deny that. He wants you to put that on the cross so the true self can come forth. The true person God created you to be. So don't be afraid to put that imposter on the cross. Jesus recognized evil as a reality. He did not deny it. In our world, people believe man is basically good. And that leads to disillusionment. Okay? God wants to give us grace. And one of the last things I want to show you is what grace really is. Now, everybody says, they like that little acrostic that says, God's riches at Christ's expense. That spells grace, the acrostic. But when they say that, I always say to myself, what are the riches? What are they talking about? Well, if you go to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, you get, I think, the best definition of grace in the whole Bible. But the word grace isn't there. But it says this. It says, he has blessed us with all Riches in the heavenly places. In other words, picture it this way. Let's conclude this quickly here. Here's the heavenly places. And there is God's unlimited wisdom. There's his unlimited power. There's his unlimited forgiveness. There's his unlimited mercy. I mean, just go on. You can make a huge list of all the unlimited characteristics that God represents. God's riches... At Christ's expense, all of that made available to you. There's no excuse for sin. There's no excuse for any of the things that we make excuses about. There's unlimited grace. If you need to forgive somebody, don't say, oh, I just can't forgive. No, no, of course you can't. Without me, you can do nothing, Jesus said. But you have all the resources you need to make that happen. But, you remember the cross where I showed you we make decisions? You've got to make decisions. Are you going to move in obedience to Jesus? Because God only pours this out when he sees somebody moving in the direction he wants them to go. He doesn't pour it out if you're going in this direction. Why would God give all his resources to somebody who's doing something he doesn't want them to do? Does that raise your hand if that makes sense? But when he sees you deciding to go his direction... He just opens that all up. It says, to him that knocketh, it shall be open. What's going to be open? All of heaven. And so I conclude with this illustration. Corrie Ten Boom, again, had an enemy that had mistreated her in the Belsenbergen concentration camp. And I visited that camp. And one night after one of her services, after she got out of prison, this guy was walking down the aisle, holding out his hand, saying, Corrie, will you forgive me? And she said, even as a Christian, I had to admit I hated him. There was nothing I could do about those awful feelings I had. But I did have control over my right arm. I did have a decision I could make. So I reached out my hand in faith. She said, was nothing in here for me to give. But I reached out my hand in faith. God saw that. And she said, all I can say is when I did that, it was like an electric current went down through my arm and into my hand. And when I grasped his hand, The love of Christ and forgiveness filled my heart, and I was able to honestly say, Brother, I forgive you, and I love you. But you have to make the decision. God is not going to support you until he sees you moving in the way he wants you to go, and then then all of that is there. It's all there. It's all going to happen, and he will make it a reality. I cannot control my feelings, but I can control my actions. The Bible says, Yield your members. If he says that, then we can do that. We can't make that a reality, but we can yield our members and then let God fill it with his reality. And then we conclude by saying, thine is the kingdom. We are only a kingdom of priests. We are only here mediating the grace of God. We're not the king. He's the king. And we have to relate to him. And then he can express the power and the glory. It's his kingdom. It's not ours. But we can choose to function in a way that he can pour out his grace and make a reality that is a beautiful example of his kingdom. Not perfect, but credible. A picture of what the whole world would look like if everybody obeyed Jesus. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you this morning for this wonderful prayer. And Lord, teach us to pray it. To teach us to pray every part of this, all of its ten elements that have to do with all of life. And pray it honestly. And receive the answer to all these wonderful realities in our life, in every decision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.